Whether disasters are happening on a global scale or in your personal sphere, these are difficult times that require prophetic insight from God in order to be at rest. This is Sam Solon inviting you to the continuing study of the book of Revelation. We want to continue our studies in the book of Revelation and we are in the probably the, the most difficult part of this book. It's chapter 13 and this one speaks of course of the mark of the beast and brings in to its context um, passages like uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that speak of the man of lawlessness. Now the problem we have typically in the interpretation of the book of Revelation is that so much has been said that already colors our perceptions. But almost nothing that has been said about the interpretation of the book of Revelation brings in all of the contexts of Scripture itself. You don't have to be particularly wise to recognize the fact that if this is the summation of all prophetic utterances and indeed if it's the summation of Scripture, it is impossible for that goal to be arrived at without looking at the entirety of Scripture, particularly at the thematic Scriptures, in other words, the great themes of Scripture. So I want to begin today by recapping something I did the last two uh, sessions ago. Um, Let's start with, uh, let's go back to Revelation 13 beginning at verse 5. There it is speaking of this beast, the beast of seven heads and ten horns, what I've characterized as a systemic kingdom, namely the cosmos. Satan gives his power, his throne and great authority to the beast. And so this thing arises and is supported by Satan. It arises as the quintessence of the expression of of that which is the offspring of Satan. To go back to Genesis 3 verse 15 where God prophesied that in the continuation of time from the point at which Adam and Eve had sinned against God, uh, having been induced to, to that condition of sin and rebellion against God by the, uh, the, the, the deception of Satan, that this would continue, this was a, a, an initiation of a process that would result in a culmination and a fullness, both for the woman and uh, for the serpent. So the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, it would crush the seed of the serpent. 
So the, 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 the serpent would produce an offspring, the woman would produce an offspring. Each, each one, the woman, the, the, the serpent, would produce an offspring after its own kind. So the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman was destined to crush the head of the serpent. So this was going to be a spiritual battle and the offspring of the serpent was going to be the final objection to, the final resistance against God. So that would take on a form. Now if you're viewing these things domestically, in a domesticated fashion, then what is the offspring of the serpent? What is the seed of the serpent? Another snake? No, especially when in the book of Revelation, the 12th chapter, it refers to that ancient serpent, the devil and Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was cast out. And then referencing the identical personage, it says, and the, the Satan, this ancient serpent from the Garden of Eden, Satan gives his power, his throne and great authority to the beast. So the thing that rises up, characterized in Scripture both in Daniel 7 and here again in Revelation 13 as uh, a beast of seven heads and ten horns, concerning whom or concerning which Daniel had already told us. These four great beasts are four kingdoms that shall arise from the earth. Now the prior three, the lion, the bear, the leopard, were physical kingdoms like Babylon and Greece and Rome uh, with defined borders. Uh, Their empires were, you know, the boundaries of their empires were commonly known. But in this fourth beast, it was, its destiny was to crush and trample down and, dev- uh, and devour the whole earth or crush and devour the whole earth and trample down those who are left. I'm using the exact language of Scripture. So this is a global kingdom. Now that could have one of two meanings. A domesticated meaning would say that the borders of this kingdom, like the borders of Rome or the borders of Babylon, uh, would extend physically to certain geographies. Now that's a domesticated understanding. The other kingdoms were types and shadows of this kingdom. So you focus less on the geography that these kingdoms, over which these kingdoms established hegemonic control and more on the nature of the beast. The beasts, the lion, the bear, the leopard, these are all summa predators, ultimate predators. And so the spirit of predation is what this kingdom Uh, embodies. And this final kingdom, seven heads, ten horns, which has hegemony over the whole earth, uh, 
has to be understood then as other than reference to physical geography. Its reference is to spiritual domination, how it captures people, how it brings people under its domain, under its rule, under its hegemony. With that said, we understand from the rest of Scripture that Satan's kingdom, over which he's called the God of this world, which is the term kosmokrator, K-O-S-M-O-K-R-A-T-O-R, that's the world we are told not to love. Whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, according to 1 John 3 uh, at a verse, about verse 12. Um, so this, this cosmos, you see, is defined, the, it, the God of it, the one who made it, the one who dominates it, is called the cosmocrator, the creator of the cosmos. Uh, the cosmos itself is defined in the Greek as an orderly arrangement of systems, by implication of systems, under the sway or rule of the cosmocrator, and these systems are that upon which human life depends. So instead of a geographic kingdom, which is visible, this is an invisible kingdom comprised in systems, so that the control of the systems equates the rule of the cosmocrator. Now, with that, that's background to where we are in the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation. So, uh, you begin to see now this conflict of these two kingdoms as expressions of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I've talked about what the seed of the serpent is and I've already talked about what the, who the seed of the woman is. The seed of the woman in principle reference is Christ. Not so much Jesus but Christ. The distinction being Jesus is a reference to the man whose mother was Mary. Christ is a reference to the Son of God a spiritual man to whom an assemblage of spiritual parts or an assemblage of spirits might be possible. So by one spirit then are we baptized into one body according to 1 Corinthians 12 and therefore we are the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is that that is described as the seed of the woman. It was what was envisioned, just as surely as when God said, as He had just previous to uh, uh, Genesis 3, God had said, uh, let us make a man in our own image and likeness. A man in the image and likeness of God is not Adam, it's not the first Adam. A man in the image and likeness of God is Christ. The first Adam contained the natural order of man, but it's the last Adam who is like Christ. 
So when God is speaking, you may always presume that in the mind of God, He is consciously aware of the end from the beginning. Now these are all a little bit more difficult things to grasp, although if you're listening to this message without the preconceptions of your prior religious training, these things are painfully simple to understand. This is how much the enemy has blocked and obscured the thinkings of people so that things that would otherwise be rather simple to understand are now considered deep and ponderous. None of the things I'm saying here are meant to be deep and ponderous. Now, there are things that are deep and ponderous, but this is just, as it were, following the bouncing ball. This is just seeing where Scripture goes in the plain meaning of Scripture. Isn't it tragic that we've come to the point where the simple is considered too profound for the majority of believers? I mean, this is pathetic. Anyway, now with that understanding of the seed of the woman being the corporate Christ, the corporate son, the seed of the serpent being a a kingdom of comprised of systems, we now look at the fact that the reference to the seed of the woman is intrinsically spirit and the appeal of Christ is to the spirit man, for the spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirits that we are the sons of God. And of course, most of you will recognize, I just quoted uh, Romans 8, uh, 11 and beginning in that reference, speaking about what Jesus Himself had said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, I'm, I'm laboring to establish a foundation for the interpretation of the, 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 the mark of the beast which is juxtaposed with the mark of the, or the name of the Father. Both are written in the forehead and the understanding of the one leads to the understanding of the other. And again, my principal point is when you segregate Scripture, when, you, when you've made Scripture into no more than topical references, then you're going to fixate on trying to understand what 666 means without the benefit of its context which inherently interprets it. And that's what I want to do in this series of recordings. Now, now when you when you so when you start with that prophecy from Daniel, I mean uh, from the book of uh, Genesis, the third chapter, verse 15, you see a pattern. And the pattern is those who are the seed of the one and those who are the seed of the other. Both are meant to be the containers of all of humanity. All of humanity would be contained in the seed of the woman, all of the uh, humanity 
will be, all who are not contained in the seed of the woman will be contained in the seed of the serpent. Right? Both of those are considered houses. Houses. The term to dwell in is really what's implied centrally here. And uh, it's, uh, to dwell in is the word, is the word oikomene, oikomene. It's O-I-K-O-U-M-E-N-A, O-I-K-O-U-M-E-N-A, oikomene. It's a feminine noun and uh, the present part particle, uh, it, it refers to to dwell or to inhabit. I'm sorry, it's the present participle which has to do with to dwell or to inhabit. It denotes, among other things, uh, those who, are, who dwell in the earth as in those who dwell in the world. The word earth uh, as appearing in Scripture uh, is, has, has multiple meanings and one of the meanings of the word earth is the following. It is a spiritual, uh, it's a spiritual dwelling place. The earth as a whole derived from the Latin term terrarum orbis, the territory of the earth. Uh, among the five different meanings is this meaning. Um, those who, who dwell in a spiritual condition known as earthly or of the earth. This is as opposed to the physical earth. So you might live in the geography say of Europe or Central America or, or Africa. Um, so, so, so there are references to that form of the meaning of earth. But then there are references to a spiritual existence. That which is earthly, which is controlled, uh, it's descriptive of being carnal, it's descriptive of being devilish or sensual. So to dwell in the earth in that instance is to, uh, is to be an inhabitant of that world. So for example, God has called us out of the world into the kingdom and when that concept of world relates to the carnal, the sensual, uh, the devilish, uh, to be earthly or to dwell in the earth is a reference to being in a condition that opposes God. So in a sense you are in the, in the uh, oikomene, the O-Y-K-O-U-M-E-N, the oikomen of the earth. The word oikomene is comprised of the word oikos and mene. Uh, oikos is a house, 
the oikos, uh, the oikos nomos, for example, is the term economy, which is to dwell in the provision of. So uh, if you're talking about the house of God, your, oikomenos, your oikonomia, your economy, is derived from God. If you're talking about dwelling in the earth, your economy depends upon the evil one. And that's how he controls people in the cosmos. So oikomene, oikomene is the reference to what you inhabit or what you dwell in in the fashion of a house. That may be either in the house of God, the family of God on one hand, or it may be, in which case you are said to dwell in heaven, you are said to be in the economy of heaven. If on the other hand uh, your economy is of the earth, the carnal, the sensual, the devilish, then it's, it's, uh, it, the, the, your dwelling place in the meaning of earth at that point, which is the, the word yeah, Y-E-A, um, if, if you're dwelling in the earth at that point, you are living in the economy of the sweat of your brow, you're living in the economy controlled by the evil one. All right? Those are some, some baselines that I wanted to establish as we come now to look at these verses in the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter. At verse 5 it says, He, this beast, uh, was given a mouth. From Daniel we know that this mouth was upon the horn. There were uh, seven heads, ten horns, and one of these horns was given a mouth. A double meaning of the word horn is an instrument. So horn may either be the way that a beast projects its power, like like a bull with horns uh, might project the entire power and strength of that beast by its horn, or it may be a trumpet. The meaning of the word horn may be a trumpet. For example, the priest in the Old Testament, as they walked around the city of Jericho, the priest blew on trumpets of ram's horns. So the notion of a horn can be either the projection of the strength of the beast or the sound of the beast, but in this case it's both, because the sound of this beast is its power, because of the nature of the war. So no wonder that this little horn became preeminent over, it, it replaced three horns with itself. So there were ten horns, three were replaced down to seven, but then the one that replaced it being the eighth horn, and it was the preeminent horn, it was the preeminent instrument of the beast. Was given a mouth, he was given a mouth, verse 5 of Revelation 13, 
speaking great things and blasphemies. Now I've already uh, gone into this, so I'm just skipping over, but making this point, he was given authority to continue for 42 months, then he opened his mouth. We've said before, this is a war of ideologies. This is a propaganda war because the warfare is done by words requiring a mouth or a trumpet blast and it's been given a length of time to make war that is analogous to the time that Christ was on the earth as the mouthpiece of the Father. The words which I speak are not my own but it's the Father who is living in me who's both doing His work and speaking His words, right? So he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God and what does he blaspheme? He blasphemes the name of God which is implicit with the power of God. Uh, He blasphemes his tabernacle which is the body, the body corporate, that's where God dwells, and he blasphemes those who dwell in heaven. In other words, those who live in an economy that he does not control. Now the kingdom of heaven, as you may well recall, the kingdom of heaven is on the earth and it is in heaven. Its origin is heaven but its territorial uh, rule, the, the territory that's subject to it is both heaven and earth. So those who dwell in heaven may be living on the earth but deriving their entire economy, their perspectives, their identity, their purpose and their support from the economy of heaven. And if you live in the kingdom of heaven that is indeed how you do live. So he blasphemes the name of God and his tabernacle which is the body of Christ and those who dwell, those who are in the economy of heaven. And then it goes on to say, he was granted to him to make war against the saints and to overcome them so we know that the outcome of this propaganda war will be unfavorable to the saints. Authority was given over every tribe, tongue and nation so nobody nobody had a place to go and retreat from this barrage of sound which is substantively redefining reality. And here's the, the, the important thing from our point of view, all who dwell on the earth will worship Him. So what do we have? We have now the juxtaposition of those who dwell in heaven and those who dwell on the earth. So the dwelling place, the house, the oikonomi, the the location in time may either be in the, the house of God or in the kingdom of the cosmos. So when everything reaches its apogee then, there are two considerations. Are you of the house of God, therefore do you dwell in heaven, 
regardless of whether you're living on the earth or you've already matriculated to heaven, or are you dwelling on earth, meaning are you living in the economy of the cosmos? So the hegemony of the beast is entirely over those who dwell on the earth, who are in the house of Satan because every house has a father and every inhabitant of each of the houses goes by the name of the father. So that's what we want, we want to pick up from there. I've laid out a foundation for understanding the mark of the beast. We'll go forward from here in the next broadcast. I'm Sam Solon, thank you for listening, bye-bye.